Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today we have a bonus episode for you based on a conversation I recently had with Biola professor J.P. Moreland. He's one of the top philosophers in the world and has really distinguished himself talking about the evidence for the soul. What is the soul? How do we know it exists? And why is it important for the spiritual life? This is from a conversation we had on my YouTube channel, which is in partnership with the Biola Apologetics slash Talbot Apologetics program. So now and then when I get a chance to interview Biola professors or alumni, we're going to feature these as bonus episodes for you on the Think Biblically podcast. So as usual, if you enjoy it, please consider sharing it with a friend. Enjoy Dr. Moreland on the evidence for the soul. And I'm just honored to be a part of uh, what you're doing here. It sounds like a great idea to have these conversations. Well, we've had a lot of really interesting conversations lately. Last week, we had Josh Swaminoff and we had Doug Axe talking about the evidence for evolution, how we should engage the scientific community. This Sunday coming up, you might find this one interesting, JP. I'm inviting my father on to just give his perspective and share some untold stories of just 50 plus years of life in ministry. So if you are new to the channel, hit subscribe because we have some very good interviews coming up you are not going to want to miss. Well, tonight is going to focus on the question of the existence of the soul and the importance of the soul. And I remember, JP, when I had you in apologetics class, this was 1998, when I was a senior at Biola. You started talking about the evidence for the soul. I'd never heard this before, and it just changed the way that I thought. Number one, gave me confidence that the Christian view of body and soul is true. But number two, it unlocks so many doors, so to speak, in my own spiritual life and practices. And that's what I'm hoping we can unpack uh, uh, tonight. But let me ask you first, you have a background in science, you have a background in philosophy, you teach at Biola University, and uh, just have written a ton of books. Of all the areas you could go into, why did you choose philosophy of mind? that's a good question. I, I began to realize that in the universities for the last, I'd say, 20 to 25 years, really one, one of, if not the central question, has been what is a human being? Hmm. Uh, because your view of what a human being is is going to be influential in your understanding of well, how do we solve a human being's problems and what, what is appropriate and inappropriate for a human being. I was also concerned, Sean, about the idea that science has somehow shown that we're our brains and our nervous systems, and there really is no such thing as a soul. That's a, an outdated religious notion. So I wanted to step into this area and, and, and see if I could provide some clarity and some help and they may learn some things myself. And so that's, that's really what happened. Well, there's no question that you've brought clarity to a lot of people. And you've written some academic books that we can refer people to. But the one that we're going to walk through is a really helpful book you wrote, just easily titled The Soul. And you gave me the opportunity to endorse it. And I have not read any other book that just gives a basic introduction what the soul is, why it's important, and how we know it's true. This is real. So we're going to kind of walk through the outline of this book. But let's just start with this question. What do we mean by the soul so we're on the same page? Well, that's a really good question, and um, there there are two kind of a parallel views uh, in the history of thought about the nature of the soul. And the first uh, definition that would be more of what is called the Cartesian definition, following Descartes, would be that the soul is a spiritual or immaterial substance that contains consciousness and unifies it. So the soul would be an immaterial substance that contains and unifies consciousness. Uh, now, there's another definition, which I'm a bit inclined to myself, and that would be following the history of from Aristotle to uh, Thomas Aquinas, and it would be more Aristotelian Thomistic, and that would say, agree with the Descartes and say, well, the soul is an immaterial or spiritual substance that does contain consciousness, but it also has the powers of life. So 
the soul would be what enlivens or animates the body. Now, on this view, uh, if the body does not have a soul, it's no longer a body but a corpse. Whereas mm. for Descartes, a body would still be a body without the soul because the body for him was just a physical machine. Uh, it might not be functioning, but it would still be a body. So there are two definitions. One is that it's a spiritual substance that contains consciousness, and the other it's a spiritual substance that contains consciousness and gives life to the body. Now, you lean towards the latter definition, more of the Aristotelian one rather than the Cartesian one. First off, is that correct, and why? That is correct. Um, and, and the basic reason is both a purely rational one and then a, a Christian one. The purely rational one has to do with the fact that the bodies of living organisms, living things like the human body, uh, has a unity to it that makes it not just a collection of parts. It's not just an aggregate of parts put together and fastened together by bonding relations like a chair, a table, or an automobile is just a collection of parts put together by soldering and welding and this and, and so forth. But there's a completely different kind of unity that the body has. And so uh, a very good way to explain that unity is to realize that what, what gives it its unity is that it is ensouled. That would be the, the rational reason, an attempt to explain the type of unity the body has and why it could have that unity. The Christian view is that the relationship between body and soul seems to be much more intimate. They, they seem to be much more closely intertwined than the, the, the Cartesian view, which would say that the body is a substance, uh, the soul is a substance, the body is sort of a, an aggregate of parts or a machine, and they relate to one another purely by cause and effect. That means if I will to raise an arm somewhere, mine goes up. <laughs> okay. And if my, if my brain gets hit in the head, well, then I feel the pain. So uh, my body can cause things to my soul, and my soul can cause things to my body, but that's the only connection. And I want to say it's deeper than that, biblically speaking. Okay, that makes sense. Now, by the way, JP, some people are making some comments, giving you some serious love here for your work, citing your book, Scientism and Secularism. Uh, I see some great questions here. Hold on a little bit. We're going to work through some of the basics. And then some of these questions about brain-computer interface are awesome. We will come back to those. You are head, You know exactly where we, where we are heading in this. So lay, lay out for me, if you will, the basic case that you make in this book. You've defined what you mean by the soul. So in your book, The Soul, kind of 30,000 foot view, and then we'll dive into some of the particulars. What is it that you're arguing for? Well, I'm, I'm really, when it comes to the soul, I also argue that consciousness is not physical, but I'd like to set that aside. And um, we all know that there is something that has consciousness. There's a possessor of consciousness. And whatever that is, also appears to be an intentional agent that acts in the world intentionally. I mean, I do some things on purpose, and I, and I, I seem to be free about them. So there, I, I want to know what that is. What, what is that thing that has consciousness and uh, acts as an intentional agent and so on? So um, I make two claims. Okay. Uh, the, first, the first claim that I actually made when I was invited to lecture at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and I lectured to about 130 neuroscientists and research biologists, mm -hmm. most of them weren't Christians, and I made the claim that, that science and neuroscience in particular have almost nothing to contribute when it comes to the, to the, the, the ontological question about the nature of consciousness and the nature of its possessor, that neuroscience, and neither does artificial intelligence. They have nothing okay. to say. Uh, that what where where neuroscience does play a role is is in trying to understand 
correlations between mental states and brain states and how certain things in the brain causes, causes things to happen in the conscious soul and the other way around. That's, that's all right. Well, I got absolutely no pushback on that. Wow, okay. Because, because once I clarified what the ontological issues were, it became obvious that science cannot address them. So my first claim was that the, if you want to know what, if, if there is a soul and what it is, that is a philosophical discussion that has nothing to do with science. Science is not equipped to address it. It's just a different discipline. My second uh, claim was that if you look at the arguments for the existence of the soul and, the, and you look at, say, the major rival to that, that were our brains or something of that sort, or perhaps our bodies, it's very clear that the case for the soul is far more reasonable to believe that we that we are souls than that we are brains or bodies or something physical. And that's kind of the general uh, thesis of the book. Okay, so one, uh, an evangelist who you and I know, who actually used to be an evangelist, now he's an atheist, made a point that he was kind of losing his faith in God, had kind of an accident, hit his brain, and it changed his personality. And out of it, he said, I realized it's all just in the brain. There's no reason for an independent soul. Now, you just made the point that would respond to this, but clarify why changing the brain and affecting personality doesn't mean there's no such thing as a soul. Sure. Two reasons. Uh, the first one is, if I'm in the driver's seat of a car, and I'm seat buckled in and the seat belt is locked and the doors are locked and I can't get out of the front the driver's seat my ability to to do certain things and drive around town depends on the car working if the steering wheel was broken so that it only turned right and wouldn't turn left okay then I would be limited in what I could do but that wouldn't prove I was the car okay uh, that that dependency on the steering wheel might just be a dependency. Like when I'm in the car, I depend on the car working. So if damage is accrues to the car, if the, if the engine shuts down, I can't move. But that doesn't prove anything other than that while I'm in the car, I'm, I'm dependent on it. Now, if I could get out of the car, Whatever damage to the car there was would make no difference. So that when a person dies, we have strong evidence that even if they had Alzheimer's or something like that while they were in the car, as it were, the body, that that no longer counts and they're able to see. For example, there's been stunning research done by two research uh, uh, scholars at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine that did studies on, on patients that were born blind. Their optic nerves were seared by having too much oxygen for, uh, in, their, in the incubator when they were, say, pre-born. But these people that had near-death experiences and were able to report seeing things that were empirically verified later so that they got things right that they were unable to see when they were in their bodies, both before the experience and after they came back, they were blind again. So I would say that the guy, that this gentleman's brain damage is what a dualist would predict because we do believe that the body provides a vehicle through which the soul functions. And so if my eyeballs are put out, even though it's the self that sees, it's my eyes don't see anything. I do, if I, but I do it by means of my eyes. So if my eyes are poked out, I won't be able to see. And if my brain is damaged, I won't be able to think. That doesn't prove anything other than that while I'm in the car, I depend on it working to function. Mm -hmm. So that would be my fundamental answer to that, I think. That's great. So all it shows is correlation between the two. It doesn't rule out its existence. Because on a dualist worldview, you actually would expect this to happen. I think it's John Eccles, if I'm not mistaken, who uses a piano player and a piano. And of course, they're both physical. But if the piano is damaged, 
the piano player cannot play through the piano, but the problem is not in the capacity, it's in the piano itself. That's Sounds right. like that's the same idea. Yeah, very, very good. And I would also say that this gentleman who said that he came to realize that it was all in the brain, well, if you're just your brain, you can't realize anything. Because okay. an act of realizing something is actually a mental act of gaining insight into an idea or perhaps into the relationship between ideas, like a logical relation. Suppose, suppose I have the thought, if P, then Q. If it's raining, then it's wet. And then I have the thought, P, uh, it's raining. Well, insight would mean that I would see that if those two thoughts are correct, it follows that it's wet outside. And I'm able mm. to draw that conclusion because I what? I realized that the first two thoughts entailed the third thought. That's a mental act that has to be undergone by a self. A brain can't realize anything. It's brute matter. It's neurons, electrons, and things like that. And, and, and even if you believe that the brain has consciousness, consciousness would be what's called epiphenomenal. That means that the brain squirts out consciousness somehow, but consciousness can't cause anything because it would violate the laws of, it would violate uh, the conservation of energy, some argue, and it would seem to be an interruption into the laws of physics, because if the brain is chugging along according to natural law, but I have a mental state of realizing something, uh, that couldn't cause me to change my views on anything. It would just be a kind of a dummy byproduct. So the very act of realizing something presupposes that I am a mental agent and that I can have a mental state of, of having insight into something that causes me to change my mind, not my brain to, to do something different. So the reasoning faculty itself, it's reliable, is only trustworthy if there's such a thing as a soul, not purely a physical process. Now, you lay out a few different arguments and evidences for the soul, but let's pause for a minute and talk about naturalist attempts to account for, say, the soul or the mind or our reasoning faculties before we look at the positive evidence for the soul. And one of them you hit on is called epiphenomenalism. So this essentially, correct me, make sure I get this right, that you have a physical process and the mind emerges, it pops into existence at some level of complexity. But if so, if it emerges, I think an example that's used often is like hydrogen and oxygen don't have the property of wetness, but when they come together, this new property kind of emerges. The mind would be something like that. So is that a correct explanation of epiphenomenalism? And why is that not an adequate view of the mind? Yes, good. Good, very good. Uh, I would I would rather uh, you say that consciousness emerges because if you say the mind did, and I understand that that's yes. a legitimate way of talking, but some people might be misled by the word mind as some sort of substance or substantial thing. And so I would rather, uh, I understood what you meant by it, but because yeah. we were on the same page, but for our audience, I would say the idea is that when matter reaches a certain level of complexity, consciousness emerges, but it doesn't have causal powers to act back top down back on matter because that would violate uh, the, the, it would be an intervention into the sequence of physical events that are law governed. And that would violate the law-governed behavior of the brain. All right. So, okay. yes, that would be one view. Now, there okay. are so many problems with that view that it's just it's, – it's actually wildly implausible. I mean, if, if, for one thing, to claim that consciousness is emergent is really not a solution to the problem. Mm. It's actually a name for the problem that needs to be solved because the question is – how could there be such a thing as emergent consciousness if you start with brute matter that is best described by an ideal physics, chemistry, 
and, and biology and neuroscience. So emergence really isn't a solution, it's a name. The second problem with it, Sean, is that it's a case of getting something out of nothing hmm. without an adequate cause. Let me explain. Uh, a, a, a physicalist who thinks everything's material, or at least uh, what gives rise to consciousness is material, is going to say that the, that if you want to ask me what's what it means to say something is physical, the answer is that it is completely describable in the language of the hard sciences. And so, the uh, something is physical if it has physics properties or chemistry properties like it has mass and location and might mm -hmm. have a charge perhaps it has it's magnetized uh, and i could go on but people sure know what kind of properties chemicals and physical objects have and neuro neurons they have synapse they fire and so on now the point is that that gives us a picture of what's called brute matter and by using the word brute you mean that it's it's utter material without any consciousness in it. Well, how is it that by rearranging the geometrical structure of consciousness, purely just a new combination or arrangement of what already existed, but now it's put in a different arrangement, are you going to get something completely brand new popping into existence that never existed in the history of the universe until matter reached that right level of complexity. You can't expect, you can't get something out of nothing. So, uh, so that's the, the next problem. The first, it's a name for the problem, not a solution. Yep. The second, it's an example of getting something out of nothing. And then I'll give you a quick third one. Okay. Uh, and, and that's that, that's called. I hate to use a fancy word here, but it's called the Sorites problem, S-O-R-I-T-E-S. Those were the ancient Greeks who said, well, if you have a person who's got a full head of hair and you take one, one piece of hair out of him, will he become bald? No. Well, how about another one? And you could seems like you could keep doing that and you'd never end up with somebody that was bald. Uh, now, the, so the problem goes like this. Um, suppose that the level of complexity needed for consciousness to appear would be level N. And suppose N involves 5 billion particles in a certain arrangement. Okay. Well, the question is, well, why wouldn't consciousness spring into existence with N minus 1 particles? That is 5 billion, 400 Four billion nine hundred ninety nine million. <laughs> yeah. uh, five billion minus one. Well, sh they're so similar that the answer is going to be well. Of course, that would give rise to consciousness. But if you keep taking one electron away, you're eventually going to. I mean, if you had only two electrons or two sure. atoms, that's not going to be conscious. So somewhere in there, consciousness goes out of existence by removing one tiny little particle. Now, the problem with that is that you've got this massive effect, namely the complete disappearance of consciousness with an utterly minuscule cause, the removal of one single electron from this massive group of billions of them now that doesn't that is utterly ridiculous and so a person who's committed to the emergence of consciousness is committed to the idea that somewhere down the line if you remove that one final little tiny particle woof, that's the breaking point where anything from that point lower you're not going to get consciousness. That seems absurd because it's saying mm -hmm. that a, such a tiny cause can produce such a significant effect. That makes so sense. I think emergence is real problematic for those so, other reasons. So to sum up for our audience, we're talking about naturalistic attempts to explain consciousness. And one is that consciousness just kind of pops into existence. It's epiphenomenal. But the problem with this is this isn't really an explanation. It's just citing the problem and lacking an explanation. You gave three. Um, and your second one, you remind me really quickly, your second one. I just lost my train of thought. 
Oh, I'm sorry. The second one was about something from nothing. And this is a part of a larger problem for the naturalistic worldview. The origin of the universe had to get something from nothing. The origin of life had to get information from a physical process. Now, when it comes to consciousness, how does matter in motion produce this novel uh, property, this feature that's called consciousness? And there's more problems like you cite for epiphenomenalism. Another popular one is what's called functionalism. And I, I have a, a former professor from an Ivy League school. I was having a conversation with him, and he's a neuroscientist. And he defined consciousness for me this way. He said, see if I can get it correctly. He said, the mind to the brain is like flight to a bird. In other words, it's this process that a bird does. So consciousness, in a sense, is this process and this function that the brain does. You were just in a discussion recently, and I think someone gave a definition to you that the mind is what the brain does. I think it was that simple. So right. what? explain what functionalism is and maybe just one or two problems with that naturalistic attempt to explain consciousness. Well, what uh, one move to, to make for the naturalist is to say that consciousness is a functional role that the brain uh, plays. And so let's take pain. You define pain as some brain state or other that is caused by certain inputs, like being stuck with a pin or kicked in the knee or drilled with a dentist drill. And that input then produces an output. And that output will be a bodily motion. Maybe it'll be a grimacing and a groaning or a sound that comes out, ouch, or something of that sort. And so, uh, uh, and there might be another output like like wanting pity or wanting to be soothed or something. Sure. But notice that what we've done is we have def we've characterized pain as a, a functional role of inputs leading to outputs. And then we ask the question, well, what is it that plays that role? What is it that realizes the role of inputs and outputs? And that is, the answer is a brain state. So just like being a quarterback is not a property Patrick Mahomes has, his he has attributes like 6'3", and he weighs so many pounds, but he doesn't have the attribute of being a quarterback. That's not an attribute he has. Mm. That's a role he plays. And so gotcha. what is a quarterback? It's a functional role in the game of football. It's defined by certain things that the quarterback can do. He can receive the snap from center and so on, and certain outputs that he can produce that other players aren't allowed to do. Now, what does Patrick Mahomes do? Well, he realizes that he plays that role, right? He doesn't have the property he plays the role. So by doing this, we're able to say that mental conscious states are really nothing but functional roles that are played by the brain as the intermediary between the pin sticking you. That causes certain electrical activity in the brain, and that causes certain outputs like shouting out and grimacing. So that way you get rid of uh, consciousness by reducing it to a brain state that plays the role, the pain role. Gotcha. Now, what is missing is consciousness. And what do I mean by that? I mean, uh, a, every conscious state has a what it is like to be in that state that can be known from the first person introspective point of view. Let me, let me give you an example. Okay. What makes a pain, a pain instead of a taste of strawberry ice cream or a thought about lunch or whatever, is that there is a specific, what it is like to being in pain. Now let's forget that there are different kinds of pains. There would be a, what it's like to be in, in dental pain or what have you, but for, for the purposes of simplicity, we all recognize that what makes a pain a pain is that there's a it hurts. There's a hurtful what it is like to it, and uh, we can become aware of that by just 
attending to what's going on inside of us. So now, um, what what this functionalist move does is it says there is no consciousness inside us. Okay. Uh, consciousness is nothing more nor less than certain bodily output that are produced by certain inputs. That means that a that a computer could be conscious, not in the sense that a computer knows what it's like to be a computer or is aware of when they're adding or anything like that. It just means that they can function such that if you type 2 plus 2 as inputs, hit enter, it'll spit out 4 on a, piece, on a screen or, or what have you. The, 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 now, the, I want to ask the question, what is it that makes, let's say, a pain a pain? Hmm. Is it its intrinsic feel? Or is it the role it plays in my behavior? And gotcha. how so so let me give you a quick illustration mm -hmm. and we'll move on. Suppose that a person was really weirdly wired so that when they were stuck with a pin, they experienced inside what it's like to taste their favorite ice cream. Let's say that's a cookie dough ice cream, and it was extremely pleasurable. But that experience, that what it's like to taste that ice cream, caused them to grimace and shout ouch. Now, what conscious state are they in? The functionalist mm -hmm. is going to say they're in pain. Why? Well, they're in a state that's caused by uh, being stuck with a pin and that produces a grimacing and shouting ouch. Because the conscious state's just that role. I'm saying, oh, wait a minute. Now, they're in a state of tasting something pleasurable, cookie dough ice cream, yep. but I will admit that it was caused by pretty bizarre input. <laughs> sure. Sure not showing their gratitude for dessert, they're grimacing and shouting ouch. So what, what functionalism does is it utterly gets rid of consciousness altogether. So completely unconscious thermometers could be thought of as, as having consciousness because they, quote, read the temperature. Mm. You get an input, and they'll put out on a screen what the temperature is. Well, they're conscious. Well, I don't, I don't believe a, thermo a, re a thermometer is conscious. I don't believe a computer's consciousness. conscious. Mm. So that's the problem with the view. It leaves out consciousness and reduces it to behavior given certain inputs. That's super helpful. I see a lot of people in the comments who are in our program here. Wesley Puckett starting our program in the fall. I also see a couple of people going, whoa, not sure I'm following this. Look, this is, this is stuff that takes effort and it takes time to think through. But I'm telling you, when you really get some of the evidence for the soul and you unlock some of these ideas, it's really, really powerful on many levels. JP, one thing I would often do, you and I both teach at Biola in the philosophy program and the apologetics program, but I still teach high school part-time. And to get students to understand this, high school students, I would say things like, describe to me pain in physical terms. And they'd look at me like I'm crazy, but they could never do it without saying uh, hurtfulness, uh, feeling, sensation. You can't describe it in width and in terms of weight and these kind of physicalist terms. And then they start to realize there's something spiritual, so to speak, that goes beyond matter that's a part of the soul. So part of what you're saying about functionalism is that it can explain behavior, but it doesn't get to the heart of the issue that needs explaining, namely how in a physicalist universe you can have these kinds of sensations and feelings. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So, okay. Let's, let's keep going. I want people to see some more of these problems at the heart of the naturalistic worldview. Now, okay, now actually, let's, let's shift and let's do this. One of the arguments that you make in the book, and again, we're talking about JP's book, uh, The Soul, one of the simple, most straightforward books making a biblical and philosophical case for the soul. And you talk about sameness of the self over time. Yeah. How is it that identity stays the same over time? Do we know this? And why would this be evidence for the soul? Yes. Well, so far we've talked about uh, evidence that consciousness is not physical. And we've looked at 
two rivals as to how you would explain it, emergentism and functionalism. Now let's talk about the, the possessor of consciousness. And one, one reason of, that I believe that I'm a soul is because any physical object that is a collection of parts, which is characterizes every physical object that we know of, except maybe an electron, but even protons have subatomic parts. Let's take a table or a chair or, 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 or just take a table. If, if that physical object loses parts and has new parts put back into it, it's not literally the same object. I mean, one way to show this is if the table's made out of wood and I take all the wooden parts off and I put plastic parts back in, in their place so that the table looks exactly like the original one, maybe I painted it the same way, it's in no way the same table because it's got completely different parts. Hmm. But, but it doesn't become a different table at the point where all the parts are replaced, it becomes a different table when just one part is replaced. Because remember, the table just is a collection of a certain set of parts put in a certain structure. And if you have one part that's changed, you've literally got a different collection in that structure. Now, if I were a brain or a body, I would constantly be changing and not literally the same self from one moment to the next. I would be for government purposes. Uh, you know, I mean, I'd look enough alike so you could give me the same grade as the guy you got last week. But it's not literally I there anymore because mm. if my brain or body, they've, they've gained and lost some parts and are strictly speaking not the same. But I know that I'm the same from one moment to the next for two reasons. First, the first one is by my direct experience of my continuity. Think about humming a tune. A very, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So I hum that. Now, about halfway through the tune, I am aware of the fact that I, who am now humming the middle of that tune, and the, really the same hummer as the one who began humming it up to this point, and I anticipate that it will be I myself that will finish the tune. So I'm aware of my moving through time wholly as the same self. The second reason is that if I'm not the same self, rational processes would be impossible. Mm. Think again about the process of having three thoughts in a row. The first one is if P, then Q. The second thought is P. And the third thought is Q. Now, if one individual, oneself, had the thought of P, then Q, and a completely another self had the thought P, and a third self had the thought Q, there would be no reasoning. There would be three different selves that simply had three isolated thoughts. Well, if I'm a series of instantaneous little I moments, so that I'm literally different, then there would be nothing that would be able to endure through that process of thinking and, and, in, and draw the conclusion that I was aware of when I had thought one and two. Only if we're enduring selves can you go through reasoning processes. So I can't, I have to be something that is not a collection of parts. And in the history of thought, the, 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 the entity that is not a collection of parts like that is a soul. Because a soul is simple in the sense that it's not an aggregate of parts that you know, build up and form it as a collection or an aggregate, like an automobile. Okay, this makes a lot of sense. So the body, as we eat, we're regenerating cells and constantly changing from one moment to the next. So if we're just physical beings, you're literally not the same person from one moment to the next. So we need something immaterial 
that has a center of consciousness that can, can tie all these experiences together to have this kind of identity through time. So is that why when people say things like, what about your DNA? Your body changes, but your DNA stays the same from conception. That can ground identity over time is the problem that, number one, that's immaterial. There's an immaterial component to it. But second is that you don't have the center of consciousness that ties it all together. Well, yes. I mean, there's a most thinkers, not all, but most thinkers will say the DNA is not physical. It's information. And they take that to be some sort of immaterial or metaphysical entity rather than a material thing. Uh, so that would be one problem. You were right, uh, spot on on that. But secondly, I have no idea what it means to say that DNA is a conscious little self. I mean, mm. DNA is a collection of parts. Now, any object that is a collection of parts, when it performs a function, that function, like an automobile going down the road, will assign sub-functions to each of its parts. The spark plugs play one function, the, the camshaft plays another, the pistons another. So there is no thing that actually performs all the functions by itself. Similarly, if I were my brain, uh, we, all, we know, for example, that when we look at a chest of drawers, there is literally one part of the brain that has electrical activity that registers the shape, another part the color, another part the size, another part uh, the distance away in space, another part whether it's in motion or at rest. The brain breaks it down. It doesn't explain how it's unified again. And I think only a partless thing is, is capable of unifying consciousness into one unified experience. And DNA couldn't do yeah. that. That makes sense. We have a great question from uh, one of our students here in the MA Apologetics program at Biola. Uh, Leslie says, if the soul does not change, does that mean the soul of a baby and that of an adult are the same? Well, if not, then um, I, I was not that baby. <laughs> I mean, are, are, are you telling me that, I mean, I would say, I'm 72. Are you telling me that I was not born uh, in 1948 to Larry, uh, to, to Eileen and Porter Moreland in Kansas City, St. Joseph's Hospital? I know darn right, well I was. And I played high school basketball and on, on up till today. So now I think the person might be helped if I made a distinction between accidental change and essential change. So a, a soul can undergo accidental change. That is to say, a soul can be thinking about something at one time and later thinking about something else, or a soul can not have the powers of uh, uh, doing advanced mathematics, but later gain those new abilities. I can tell you right now, Sean, that I used to be able to read German and Greek, but I, I've lost mm. those mental abilities. I just, mm. because they didn't keep up with it, but those are not essential. I could exist without those, but what I can't exist without of, without being is that I am a soul that is constituted by my humanness and that I remain an individual human throughout the whole process. So, uh, I can change in my non-essential characteristics, but I can't change uh, in, in my essential ones. A body or a brain is just a collection of cells or parts. By the way, each cell is a collection all the way down to atoms and molecules and protons and neutrons. And those are, there's no way to pick which are essential and which aren't. They, they're in constant flux. This has really interesting implications for ethical issues like abortion. So there's accidental changes that take place over time in the body and soul, but the essential person remains the same from conception. Is that what you would argue? And how would you take this idea of accidental versus essential and apply it to questions of abortion? Because that's come up in the chat room a couple times. Yes. Well, whenever you have evidence 
that you have an individual living thing, an, a, a, an animal or a human, then that is ensouled because that is it's living and it has a unity to its various components that is not like just a, a bunch of parts slapped together to form an aggregate. So given the unique unity of a fertilized egg that seems to have its very own life, even though it may be dependent like somebody on a respirator, that doesn't mean that its life is not already in it, then mm. we know that it's already a living human person. Now, um, it has the capacity of, of being rational already in it, but that capacity may not have been actualized and it could well be if it's born with certain defects, it never will be. But that doesn't mean it doesn't still have the, that mental capacity. And so having the mental capacities of rationality are essential to my identity as a human person, even if they're not actualized at this point, or they can never be actualized because I'm defective in some way or another. Still, the capacities are there from the very beginning, and uh, they, they, uh, their degree of actualization, you know, uh, changes. I mean, most of the freshmen at Biola University during finals week wouldn't count the person if we, if we took their mental functioning because of staying up late drinking coffee and so on. So, you know. I gotcha. I'm not sure we faculty would qualify too during finals week <laughs> on that on that standard. Um, let me let me ask you a, an argument that you you make. About 12 years ago, I had my first formal debate with a PhD who's also a high school teacher on the question of morality, and you said bring in the issue of free will because any moral system must account for free will because morality implies I ought to do this and I ought not do that. And yet you can't have that kind of free will unless there's a soul. How does that work? Well, suppose that I was asleep and in the middle of the night, a mad scientist snuck into my room and, and planted an electrode in my brain without waking me up. He goes across the street, sets up a computer terminal. Now, he can type anything into that computer and hit the button. And that will cause that little implant to vibrate, and that will deterministically cause any desire he wants in me, which will cause my body to move, okay? So now he's in control of what goes on in my conscious life and my body. So I'm walking across the street the next morning, I get up, and this guy, want, the scientist wants me to punch the guy in the face that's about to walk past me on the sidewalk. So he enters create a desire to punch the stranger in the face. He hits enter, and that desire is caused by the scientist. And once it's there, there's no resisting it, Let's, according to the experiment we're doing. It deterministically produces my body's hand going forward. Now, am I responsible for doing something wrong? I say no, because I... What happened was not in the least bit up to me or under my control. I, there was not, I, I was just a passive bystander. The scientist hit the gentleman through me. And so what I'm going to say is that it's only if my actions aren't determined by things outside my control that I can actually be responsible for moral mm -hmm. uh, guilt or praise. If a person goes into the inner city and serves the poor, we praise them. Well, they're not responsible for that. Uh, they're not deserving of praise if they didn't, if, if what they did wasn't something that was up to them and they chose to do this. If I found out that they were actually, I don't know, in some way determined in what they did by their brain chemistry and so on, I would not ascribe them moral praise. Uh, so I can't, if I'm going to have moral responsibility, I've got to be free. My actions have got to be up to me and in my control. But that's not mm. true if I'm my brain or body, because whatever they do is governed by the laws that, that govern material objects. It's only if I'm the sort of thing that transcends those laws uh, 
people to be free. And, and that require me to be a non-physical, spiritual self of some kind in order for there to be free will. So the price of naturalism is you give up free will and moral accountability. So yes. And if, if, go ahead. And, and in fact, a number of naturalists have said there really is no such thing as moral accountability. That's why there is now therapeutic justice, which is rehabilitative mm. rather than retributive justice, mm. holding someone responsible. And Daniel Dennett, who's a, himself a very well-known naturalist, atheist, philosopher of mind, said that there just is no, there just is no resp moral responsibility for anything. But society wow. has to act like there is in certain cases, even though we know there isn't, in order to for the utilitarian benefit of retaining order in society. So we punish child molesters, even though we know they weren't responsible for doing it, because punishing them is going to help society be better off in the long run. Well, I, I'm sorry, but that doesn't work uh, because uh, you're punishing somebody for something that they didn't do. Hmm. Their bodies. How much control do we have over our beliefs? And I ask because I heard Sam Harris and other outspoken atheists say, look, when you're presented with certain evidence, either you believe it or you don't. You can't actually choose to believe something differently. So he argued in his book, Free Will, that we actually really don't have free will. Well, I don't know why he would argue that if he doesn't think his arguments could cause us to change our beliefs or, mm -hmm. or we could choose to accept his arguments. That's self-defeating. I mean, it's like arguing that arguments don't make any difference to our beliefs. Well, I don't know what, what the point would be of arguing, but, 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 the, but the issue is that while we might not freely be able to change a belief on the spot, like I can't right now choose to, to believe there's a pink elephant flying over my head, or two and two is equal to the square root of minus one. What I can do is I have to free will uh, to decide what I'm going to study. And what I'm going to think about and by assessing uh, maybe evidence for and against something, that free action can end up changing my beliefs. So I am responsible and can change my beliefs, but not freely on the moment, but rather freely by choosing what to weigh and what to evaluate and so on. Harris's point of view is, is an illustration of how rationality goes out the window if you're a physical determinist. Hmm. So would you say we have indirect control over what we believe by choosing, study certain things, think about things, work towards being open, work towards following the evidence? Is that exactly. a fair way to put it? Okay. Exactly. Uh, one of the things you talk about, you have a book with Habermas Distinct. We could talk about that some other time, but you talk about near-death experiences and how they provide at least some minimal evidence for life after death, which would potentially imply at least a minimalist view of the soul. How do near-death experiences help the case for the soul? And yes. why should we believe that they're actually real? Okay, those are, let, let, let's address those quickly in order. First of all, near-death experiences don't have to be real, any of them, to show that there's a soul. They just have to be possible. Now, why is that? Because if there's something that could possibly be true of me that could not even possibly true, be true of my brain and body, then I can't be my brain and body. So if I'm just possibly disembodiable, that's enough to show that I'm not my brain and body because they're not even – I don't know what it means to say a brain and body could exist without being a brain and body. I mean that's just incoherent. So the very possibility that near-death experiences could be true is enough to show that I'm not physical. And it's obvious that these near-death experiences, whether they're all false or not, are coherent. In other words, there's no contradiction in them, and so they could possibly be true. That's why people are willing to allow the evidence to settle the issue, whereas nobody would would use evidence to decide whether somebody found square circles in Montana. They wouldn't have to use evidence. They'd know ahead of time that it's impossible. Now, I think that there is widespread evidence that near-death experiences are actually real. And we can talk about that some other time, but it seems to me that there have been too many cases where people have 
discovered information when they were brain dead that they could not know information about what happened down in two rooms down the hospital or on a floor above them or in the cafeteria. And these have been documented later by the medical staff and the nurses, and there's no way they could have known these things if it was just oxygen deprivation or a dying brain or something like that. Those provide powerful evidence. They're called evidential NDEs because people gain evidence of things they could not have known if they were just undergoing a naturalistic phenomenon of some kind. I have one, one last question for you. Uh, but first, the bottom line, what you just said at the end about NDEs, I want to make sure the audience doesn't miss that, is these aren't just stories and experiences that people have, but in a brain dead state, gather information in a place and in a manner they could not have had it if they were just their body come back and that information checks out. So that shows that we are more than our body and there's at least some continued consciousness when the body stops functioning. So this is a part of a larger case, including free will, sameness over time, and also the failure of the naturalistic accounts to make a case that the soul best accounts for reality. Now, we haven't looked at all these evidences. We've really just kind of scratched the surface, which is why I want people to pick up your book. But a question somebody asked at the beginning that always, always comes up is, will computers be able to think someday? is artificial intelligence. Now, I know there's some artificial intelligence right now, but self-conscious artificial intelligence, do you fear that's going to happen? How should a Christian make sense of this? Uh, the idea is absolutely ridiculous. How can you <laughs> put a bunch of physical parts together that are nothing inside but electricity and stored capacities and uh, is, is a machine of some kind? And just by putting material parts together, get, get consciousness. Never forget, a computer is a computational machine that is not a conscious machine. It will never know what it's like to be that. It's not going to be sad if you unplug it. Uh, they, they don't have consciousness. They are artificial intelligence machines. And so they don't have semantic meanings. They imitate semantic meanings. What they can do is read shapes of letters and they're programmed to put other things with certain shapes, and that's all they do. And in the future, that's going to be the same thing. They could be more sophisticated, but they're never going to be conscious, sentient beings. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, at, at, at its heart, we're back to the question of something from nothing that you raised at the beginning. No matter how much you move physical parts, which is ultimately what a computer or some kind of robot is, you're not going to get this novel property of consciousness, let alone self-consciousness. That's right. That's the problem that we talked about at the beginning. Well, JP, this has been super helpful. I want to make sure we respect uh, your time. Those of you who are listening, if you understood this, like, wow, this is fascinating. Think about studying with us at Biola. Uh, Dr. Moreland teaches in the MA Philosophy of Religion program, and I took Metaphysics, Consciousness 1 and 2, blew me away on so many levels. We didn't even get to why the soul is so important for the spiritual life. We can come back to that another time. This is the kind of truth that unlocks just the way you think about and look in the world in yourself and spiritual disciplines when we understand the reality of the soul. Or JP also teaches for us in the MA Apologetics program. And in the information below this, you can get some details there. The other thing is if you're not ready to jump in and do a master's level yet for whatever reason, we have a certificate program. JP teaches some of those, I teach some of those, and we actually have a department that'll walk through, read this, and just give you simple assignments to just help you formally learn apologetics. And there's a discount code in the notes below. So make sure you don't miss that. If you've been watching this and enjoying it, give us a thumbs up. That helps us with the metrics for uh, the viewing of this program. Also, make sure you subscribe. Sunday night, I'm bringing my dad on for Father's Day. He is 80 years old. And to be honest with you, with the passing of Norman Geisler and Ravi Zacharias, I just, I didn't say this to my dad, but I said, Dad, you got a lot of wisdom and there's some stories you haven't shared. Will you come on and just share these with the Christian community, the apologetics community? And frankly, JP, you know my dad, so you know these stories are true. But if I did not know him, I would be tempted to think some of these stories were not true. But he is a modern day Paul. 
So that'll yeah. be that'll be Sunday night, and then next Wednesday I've got Preston Sprinkle coming on, and we're going to look at one of the most common new arguments that's used to look at a revisionist view on the LGBTQ question from Scripture, and just walk through how it's not faithful to Scripture. Got William Lane Craig coming on soon to talk about his new book that comes out at the end of June. Bottom line, if you like apologetics, theology, evangelism, hit the subscribe button. And uh, we want to help partner with you to learn to defend the faith. So thank you, JP. Love you, brother. Thanks so much for your time and for coming on. And, And everybody have a wonderful night.